Um, you know, for a great many of us, there is something, or in most cases, several things that we would like very much to have. But the price for these things is such that we would rather not pay it, even though that means we won't get it. So whether that's like some material thing that you'd like to buy, or whether that's like, I don't know, fitness, or freedom from addiction, or a restored relationship of some kind, more discipline, more health, whatever it might be. And really, human connectedness is actually no different. Currently, there is a preponderance of data from scientists and psychologists and sociologists to confirm what we read cover to cover in the story of the Bible, which is that wired into the human genome is the need to be connected to other human beings. And of course, much of our waking life in the modern world is designed as an obstacle course to prevent us or at least slow our access to what we call community. Despite the myth that we were sold from the outset, social media has driven people further apart than ever before. Digital addiction, busyness, the American dream for more money and more security and more comfort or socio-political vitriol between the right and the left. And in this chaotic whirlwind of all that, people still continue to wander into the doors of a church on a given Sunday morning or evening, in our case here, into Compass Church on Sunday evenings. And they'll occasionally approach me or one of the leaders and they'll ask, usually a question that sounds a bit like this, how do I get connected? And uh, we'll explain how, you know, not unlike other churches, we have forms and methods to those types of things, functions for them. And when we do that, a few of them will follow through, but most of them uh, will not. And that's for all sorts of reasons, some of them good, some of them bad. But much like the way of Jesus itself, connectedness, the idea of being connected, is a costly thing. It always costs something, but just like the way of Jesus, it's always better. And written into the entire story of God is a means of facilitating and stewarding and nurturing and growing in human connectedness. So for many weeks now, we've actually been rediscovering this ancient practice of eating and drinking. We've been talking about this thing called radically ordinary hospitality, what it means to open your home to other people, to your neighbors, to people who don't follow Jesus. We've been talking about celebration, the idea, idea of coming together to eat with friends and family, to commemorate moments and seasons of life. We've been talking about justice and injustice, how we eat in such a way that we actually contribute to the goodness and wholeness of creation rather than detract from it. And then we've been talking about the way that at the hub of human connectedness, and not just human connectedness, but spiritual connectedness with God, at the hub, we find a dinner table. And we've been revisiting the practices of the early church, the way that communion, the thing that we began just a little while and in theory is still going, the Lord's Supper, it was originally designed as a meal, as I was saying a little while ago. It was not just like a somber nibble of a cracker, a bite of cracker and a tiny sip of juice. Um, communion is this huge, entire, robust thing. And it does involve remembering the cross. It does involve examining yourself. That's why we did that, absolutely. But it also involves celebration. It involves togetherness and worship and food and drink and joy. Um, one author named John Mark Hicks has this great little book on communion, and in it he writes this. It appears that the practice of the supper in the early church was very different from ours. Their supper was home-based, a full meal with food and drink, an interactive fellowship at a table, and characterized by joyous celebration. Our practice of the supper as a silent, solemn, individualistic eating of bread and drinking of wine is radically dissimilar from the joyous communal meal that united Christians in first century house churches. 
And there are reasons that it's changed over the years. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, go back and listen to the podcast. But this is what we've been getting at, that there's a reason communion was designed one way and why it doesn't look exactly that way now. And we've been asking ourselves, what does it mean for us to rediscover what's beautiful about the communion of the early church? So tonight, we're actually going to end the teaching series on eating and drinking, and we're going, uh, eating and, drinking, and we're going to take a really short journey through the Hebrew Scriptures on our way to Jesus in the early church to unpack one last dimension of this robust ancient tradition of the bread and the cup. You guys up for it? You all right? Great. Thank you. Let's get to work. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy. First chapter, first book. When you get there, we're actually going to read from Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. This is part of the narrative of God creating the cosmos and all that. It's a beautiful story. Genesis 1:26. we read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, some scholars argue that the us in verse 26, when God says, let us create mankind in our own image, refers to other spiritual beings, what some people would call angels, who are around at the time. Like he's looking around at these other spiritual beings and going, hey, let's do this thing. Uh, others say, no, that's probably not it. The us is most likely a Trinitarian reference, meaning that God's talking to the second and third members of the Trinity, what we now know as the Son and the Holy Spirit. But really, either way, the same thing is true. We learn something incredible from this passage, which is that from the very beginning of the story, God himself has existed as a community of relationships. He chooses to collaborate, to be united to other people, to know others and be known by others out of his own volition. Creation itself, if you read the story, is an act of community. Let us create and for the purpose of community. You see that in the story. God creates with other people so that there can be more people. He creates within his pre-existent community, and he does so because he wants more relationship. That's what he's after. And sometimes I, you know, my curmudgeon uh, side feels like so hostile toward the whole like millennial disposition of like, man, I'm the most special, extraordinary, precious little thing in the entire cosmos. But listen to this. On page one of the Bible, there is a beautiful foundation of value and purpose for your life in the specific sense. No, you are not the center of the universe, but you are not an accident, not a mistake, not without meaning, not without purpose. And that purpose is actually more beautiful than one might expect. It's actually that God wanted to be with you. And it seems too good to be true, and yet there it is right there on the page. Sometimes uh, during breakfast or dinner time at our house is kind of when we're all in the kitchen making food, uh, listening to music, dancing around, lots of laughter and things like that. And sometimes uh, my son, Beck, who's four, will see at my wife, Abby, and I across the room, like embracing or kissing, and he'll run over to us and he'll say, me too, me too. So we'll have to lift him up and put him in the middle of the hug, and you know, then he'll be like, you're the bread, and I'm the lettuce, and we're a hug set, you know. And then his little sister, Isla, who's two, will see us across the room, and she'll shout in delight, Isla too, Isla too. She's still doing the third person thing. 
And, uh, and that's what God is like. He's a pre-existent union that draws more community into himself. And his arms just keep opening wider and wider for the hug that accommodates the entire world. And he does so because he himself has always been and is by nature a communal being. I want you guys to look at this beautiful painting created by a Russian painter who I'm going to venture a pronunciation, Andrei Rublev, in the 15th century. Um, it's actually regarded by scholars as one of the highest achievements of Russian art, and one name by which it is known, it's known by several, it's not been given a specific name by the artists that we know of, but one name by which it is known is simply Trinity. And in it, we think that Rublev has depicted the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they're seated together at what? A table. And you'll notice that the icon is depicted in such a way that the open seat at the table faces whoever beholds the icon. So when you look at it, you are ready to occupy the open seat at God's table. Now, if you know the story of the Bible, the plan for God to have more community kind of goes awry really quickly. The humans with whom God longs for community rebel against their creator, and as a result, the relationship dynamic becomes fractured. Evil permeates the created order. But again, God doesn't give up on humanity. He chases after them. He pursues them. It's who he is. And in that pursuit, God starts to make promises regarding his willingness to love people, his resolve to love them and pursue them and be with them. And in the Bible, these promises are called covenants. And in order to mend the fractured relationship between God and humanity, God establishes what seems to us like a really strange system of sacrifice with his people who are the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and I know it seems totally bizarre to you and I, but to ancient Israel, it was actually this powerful symbol of God's kindness, and it was also a powerful symbol of the cost of that kindness. So in the story, humanity are the ones who have screwed things up. In order for God to eradicate evil, which all people think should happen, hey, there should be less evil, in theory, he would have to also eradicate humanity, the ones who are the purveyors of the evil. But of course, that's not what God wants to do. So God allows for something beautiful, something that he loves, something that has value to him and to human beings, in this case, it's animals, to be sacrificed in the place of guilty humanity. And so humanity is reminded when they see the cost of this beautiful, valuable thing that there is a cost to fractured relationship, and they simultaneously experience God's forgiving kindness. It should have been me, but it's not. And so in that, God would restore the relationship, and he would promise Israel that he would remain faithful to her, even if she doesn't remain faithful to him. And this is called a covenant. It's much like marriage. It is a pledge of commitment. And interestingly, in the scriptures, these special promises are often commemorated by meals, of all things, meaning the source of all communal love wants to celebrate that love and that commitment with parties and food. And you see it from cover to cover in the Old Testament and in the New. Let's take a look. Turn to the right in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15, just a few pages over, Genesis chapter 15. When you get there, let's read beginning with the first verse. This is a story about a guy called Abram. You probably heard of him. Later on, he gets his own song. There's all these kids. It's a thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? That was funny? Okay, I wasn't expecting that. All right, Genesis 15, 1. After this, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. 
Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Yahweh, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Apparently, that's lame. And Abram said, You've given me no children as a servant in my household, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So you have to understand in the ancient world, to have descendants was the most important thing. It was the only thing that you would make any sort of meaningful mark on the created order was to have a family, to have a lineage, to have people who would follow you. But the word of Yahweh, verse 4, the word of Yahweh came to him. This man, the servant in your household, will not be your heir. A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took Abram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if you indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Hence the, the song. The joke comes back around. Verse 6, Abram believed Yahweh and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Yahweh, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So Yahweh said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Gets weird. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite to each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Verse 11, then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. He's like, we're trying to do something. So in the story, Abram, later Abraham, is just this dude. He's in this other land worshiping these other gods, and the one true God shows up, makes him a promise, a sacrifice is made, and uh, they actually commemorate it in a special way. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, as bonkers as all this sounds to you and I, in the ancient Near East, this is actually how a covenant was carried out. Two parties would do the whole cut an animal in half thing, and then they would step in between the bisected bodies saying, may this happen to me if I break the covenant. And the carcasses wouldn't just be left on the ground. They would actually be gathered up and prepared, and there would be a celebratory meal. And we actually do this kind of thing today, well, part of it anyway, um, think of like a wedding ceremony where you have vows, you have a covenant that's made with witnesses. They say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then there's a huge celebration meal, hopefully, I mean, at, at good wedding ceremonies anyway. If you're, one of these, if you're one of these couples with no food at your wedding ceremony, what are you doing to the rest of us? We're all there, we're hanging out, have the food, you know. If I'm at a wedding, you better believe I'm there to eat. That's what I'm thinking about the whole time. Um, I rarely officiate weddings because usually they, they're like, hey, will you officiate the wedding? I'm like, this is the one outfit I have, so this is it. Are you okay with that? And then they're like, well, that's the end of that conversation. But um, a year or so ago, I was officiating a wedding, which is already funny because here I am like this, and um, then it's over, and I didn't really know anyone, so I'm at a table by myself. There's all this loud club music playing. Everyone's partying. I had like four plates. Anything vegan, you know, there's 10 of them piled up on a plate because, you know, you got to get your money's worth. Came to the wedding show up. You don't know if an honorarium's coming or anything like that. So, <laughs> where was I? Oh, right. Any, anyway, back to the Old Testament. Have food at your weddings. It's really thoughtful. The idea is that you have a sacrifice. That happens on something called an altar. The altar of sacrifice establishes the covenant, and the subsequent meal celebrates the covenant. 
This actually happens later in Genesis 17. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you about it. God makes the covenant of circumcision with Abraham. No animals cut this time. It's something else. It's a whole thing. And the narrative is followed by Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and they're visited by these strange three heavenly strangers, and they eat a meal together to celebrate the covenant. Let's look at one more together, together, though. Turn over to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. Stay with me. We have just a couple more. I know it's a lot of Bible tonight. This is a story about two Israelites that are actually making a covenant with one another. So when you get to Genesis 31, move all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 48, and let's read together. Genesis 31, 48, Laban said, this heap, he's talking about like some stones, is a witness between you and me today. This is what is called Galeed. It was also called Mizpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. And then Laban says to Jacob, basically the exact same thing. Verse 53, may the Lord or may the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country, invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Once again, you have a promise that's being made between two people. There's witnesses. A sacrifice is offered to commemorate the promise which is followed by a celebratory meal. All right, one more time. Turn to the right in your Bible to the next book, Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. In this story, God is making a covenant with not just one person this time, but with the entire nation of Israel. Exodus 24 is actually a kind of ground zero for a theology of who God is. He reveals who he is to Israel and to Moses. He says his name. There's all kinds of incredible stuff there. But let's look at Exodus 24, beginning with the very first verse. It reads, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses, is alone, Moses alone is to approach Yahweh. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. Remember that for later. Verse 3. When Moses went and told people all Yahweh's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything Yahweh has said, we will do. And Moses then wrote down everything Yahweh had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to Yahweh. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and then the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything Yahweh has said. We will obey. Verse 8, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, remember that, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of weird stuff, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Now, I know it's strange, but don't get lost in the weirdness here. Here's what I want you guys to see this evening. In this story, a covenant is being made between God and his people. Now, prior to the covenant, God has actually warned Israel that if they come up the mountain into his presence, anyone but Moses, then it's really dangerous, and in context, they could die. But after the covenant is made, they not only approach God, they eat and drink with God. 
This is actually the wedding ceremony. God has married Israel, so to speak, and now they have a feast to celebrate. And this is easily one of the most noteworthy scenes in the entire Old Testament. And what's fascinating is that from this moment on, Yahweh actually asks of Israel that they regularly, in a kind of rhythmic, scheduled, calendar event kind of way, remember and renew the covenant that gets made here. Guess how they do that? With eating and drinking, with meals, right? The pattern repeats again and again. There's the altar of sacrifice, and then there's the table of celebration. And there's an obvious connection there, but there are equally obvious differences between the two. Again, this from John Mark Hicks. The altar is the blood ritual. It is the moment of atonement and forgiveness. God cleanses his people with blood, but the altar is followed by the table. The blood establishes our relationship with God so that we may eat in his presence. The table is the experience of reconciliation and fellowship. While the altar may be a time of sadness, penance, guiltiness, the table is a time of joy, communion, and commitment. Hicks actually in his book builds on this premise by offering lists that kind of compare and contrast the two. See, at the altar, you have a silent occasion. The table is interactive, one with another and with God. The altar is solemn, but the table is a place of celebration. The altar is individualistic. It's about you examining yourself, all that. But the table is community, the entire family of God. At the altar, there's sorrow, the knowledge of sin and death, but at the table, there's joy. At the altar, there's remorse. At the table, there's thanksgiving. The altar is about contemplation, but the table is about fellowship, externalized fellowship. The altar is introspective, but the table is expressive. The altar is about penance. The table is about commitment to one another and to God. The altar focuses on death, and rightly so, but the table focuses on resurrection and a new beginning. Now note, again, the connection between these ideas on down the list, but also the dichotomy between them. Finally, Hicks concludes this. We must distinguish between the altar and the table. The altar is the cross of Christ, but the table is the Lord's Supper. The two should not be confused, but neither should they be disconnected. At the table, we remember the altar and share in the altar's benefits, but the table should not be identified with the altar. The table is the experience of peace and communion, which is celebrated with joy and thanksgiving. The altar is remembered and re-experienced in this communion, but it is not experienced as sadness, but as good news. Now, before we move on, three things I want you to note about Israel and the covenant meals. First is that the table is a celebration, a place of celebration. That much is clear. It's a place of joy, not sorrow. Secondly, this is probably because Israel is eating with God himself. They have been restored into relationship with God himself. God is promising to be their beloved and the other way around. It's a beautiful thing. And then finally, Israel goes to the table again and again and again, not only to remember the covenant, but to renew it, to say, this is why we're here. This is what we're doing. Now, before we end tonight, we need to talk about how Israel's understanding of the altar and the table affected the practice that we call communion in the early church and today. Now, if you know the story, the original Lord's Supper was the Passover meal. We talked about that a bit earlier. Passover was a time when the Jewish people would celebrate God's redemption. They'd been rescued out of Egypt, and they'd been telling the story for generation after generation. 
But it was also a time for Israel to look forward to a coming day when God's promised king or anointed one or Messiah would finally come and usher in the renewal of all things. See, in the Old Testament, there were actually three types of animal sacrifices, if you're into this kind of thing. The first was a burnt offering. It's exactly what it sounds like. Burn up the whole animal, set on fire, and it gets burned up. The second was a sin offering, and in this sacrifice, the fat of the animal would be burned, the meat would be eaten by the priest's And finally, you have the Passover or the Thanksgiving offering. And again, the fat got burned and some meat got eaten by the priest, but the rest, the vast majority of it, was actually served at a meal of celebration with the entire community of God's people. And it wasn't just an animal. There was bread, there was drink, there was a full meal of celebration with friends and family. So now let's look once more at a passage that should at this point be a familiar one if you've been around for any of this series. It comes from Luke chapter 22. Let me read it to you guys. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter, one of his apprentices, and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Later on in the story, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this and remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, If you are one of Jesus' disciples, the 12 who are around the table of them, all of them who happen to be young Jewish men who have grown up hearing the story from Exodus again and again and again, they would probably had it memorized, all about the covenant and the pouring out of blood and the sacrifice, you would realize then and there, oh my gosh, holy cow, Jesus is reinterpreting the Passover celebration in light of what's happening right now, right this second, this evening, meaning the moment to which the Passover has been pointing forward for so many years, the coming Messiah, the renewal of all things, here he is. It's starting now. This is it, a new covenant. And in this picture, Jesus, get the gravity of this, Jesus understands himself to be the one who is capable of enacting the covenant with humanity in his own blood, his own body as the sacrifice on the altar. This is huge. The Lord's Supper is so much more than just remembering the cross. It's nothing less than the climactic fulfillment of the Passover meal, the inauguration of a new covenant between God and his people. See, in the last, summer, in the last supper, Jesus is the sacrifice on the altar. And in the many years to come, we, the church, are those who celebrate at the table following the sacrifice again and again and again. The three dimensions of the covenant celebration have taken a different shape, still there but different. Again, the table is a place of joyful celebration. Jesus has crushed the enemy, the snake, the evil one. The kingdom has been inaugurated. It's breaking in. It's growing. He's ours. We're his. He promises that. When we eat, Jesus is here with us. He is at the table, so to speak, not physically, but by his spirit alive in us. We have access to him all around us all the time. When we eat, we renew our commitment to follow Jesus. It is a decision that we continue to make every single day, every waking moment. And in communion, we actually give time and space to contemplate the beautiful enormity of that decision and then make it again 
and make it again and make it again. And you know, as we near the end of this teaching series and the formal routines of this practice in our communities, hopefully beginning something that will be a new chapter for our church in the years to come, something occurred to me and to the leadership here at Van City. You know, over the last couple of years, we've been doing these practices together in our communities and here at the church. And some of them have been like a collective starting from scratch, at least for most of us. I, mean, I know I had not practiced silence and solitude before I began to study and write for that series and that practice. I had certainly not fasted with any sense of regularity, nor a clear understanding of what exactly I was doing or why. So I had to start from scratch. You know, I built up the pieces along the way. I did my best to learn with community, trial and error, and then add a new tool to my belt. Now I know what it means to fast as a disciple of Jesus. Now I know what it means to regularly practice silence and solitude, that kind of thing. Some of the eating and drinking stuff that we've been, done, been doing has been that way as well. I mean, eating with neighbors, for, for example. There's like two of you guys, and Cam's one of them, that actually is like, heck yeah, let's eat with neighbors. The rest are like, oh my gosh, this is going to be tough. We're going to figure that out. Um, the idea of like changing the way that we shop for food so that we cut out purchases that support injustice. A lot of us still have a long way to go. We're figuring out what that looks like. But with communion, the actual practice of eating and drinking with God it occurred to me, man, all the pieces are here. They're all around you. I mean, think about it. Family here, community, food, drink, celebration, laughter. We've been doing all that since day one. Jesus is here, obviously, not just that. His words, his teachings on our minds, on our conversations, songs of worship, prayer, prophecy, all that. What we're essentially doing is just reorganizing what's been here all along. And there is a time and a place for us to focus solely on self-examination. That's why we did it at the beginning of the evening. There's a time to remember specifically the cross. There's moments that are, it's wonderfully appropriate to have quiet, somber, individualistic introspection. And we will continue to do all that as is appropriate and fitting. But through it all, we are learning to take all of this and make it the table of celebration. The bread and the cup are still here. They've been part of this community since the beginning. God's promise continues to stand over you, your life, this family, the church at large across the world. The sacrifice has long been made at this point. The blood has been shed. The costly price has been paid. And because of this, we get to sit as God's happy, undeserving, misfit children around a table of joyful celebration. We should not be here, and yet here we are. And you look across the table and you're like, you should not be here. And yet, here you are. And how incredible and beautiful is that. And we are remembering, yes, remembering the great meaningfulness of everything, that we matter, that all of this matters. We are remembering the life to which we've been called and why. We've been remembering God's promise to complete the good work he began in us specifically and his promise to one day restore everything, wipe away every tear, and make everything new. And in the midst of all of it, may the, the beauty of it all cut through the clamor and the chaos, the children running around and screaming, the laughter, the conversation, the familiarity even that so often breeds disinterest. And instead, may it renew passion for our teacher and our Master, and our Lord, that in these beautifully regular, rhythmic times, often unimpressive and ordinary, that we are still renewing our vows again 
and again and again. There's been the altar of sacrifice, and now we sit at the table of celebration. Jesus, our King, we're still here, still following you, still practicing your way together, trial and error, clumsily holding each other up along the way. And because of that, we get to eat and drink with God himself. So let's pray together tonight.